right. Well, church family, we um, today will embark upon a, a new study. Um, you know, after walking with Jesus in the in the Gospel of John for a year and a half or so, um, I was uh, I was really uh, which just concluded in December, didn't it? I, I as we neared the end of that study, I really began then to really try to think about what would be the next logical step going from that. Um, I know we took a little break into Ecclesiastes, and that was just to provide a little uh, break for you and maybe look at something interesting in the Old Testament, and hopefully that was a, uh, a great study for you. And certainly Ecclesiastes was a good one for me, and it's very, very practical, and as you can see, it was very timely. Um, but I was really, that was a short study, relatively speaking, and, and, and you know, we were in the Gospel of John for a year and a half, and, and I knew that we wanted to go in kind of the next step. Um, and, and I guess the natural step would go to, the, to, the, to be going into the book of Acts, to see the beginning of, of the church, uh, which Jesus established through his apostles uh, by the indwelling Holy Spirit, which he promised uh, to them as we read last week and which came to them at uh, Pentecost. But if you've been with the church for any number of years, you might remember that Steve Vickery had really only concluded his teaching of the book of Acts at the end of uh, 2017. And I started as pastor in April of 2018. And in between that, we did the book of Daniel. So in terms of, of the recent teaching, Acts is not that far removed. And I thought it would just be way too soon to go back to that. But I thought uh, we could go through an epistle that would take uh, an in-depth look at the proper function of the church. That might be a good and proper next step. And so today, we're going to go to one of Paul's letters and it will be his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Now, this is not a, a doctrinal letter per se. It's, it's corrective in nature um, because the, the church in Corinth was really looking more like the world than like Christ. And um, wrong, wrong ways of living always stem from wrong belief. And so while it's, it's, it's corrective in nature, Paul does teach on doctrines that directly relate to matters of sin and, and righteousness. Now, as you open up to 1 Corinthians, I'm going to show you the, the title of this section. I've titled it Called to be Saints. Um, and it comes straight from verse 2, just to begin with, if you'll turn your Bibles and, and take a look at that. And it says, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Now, you might, you might think that the title saint is only for those, those individuals um, in history that have just done some amazing things or miraculous things, and we've sort of venerated them and elevated them to this uh, heavenly status. Uh, the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, Eastern, or, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy as well tends to, tends to do that. Uh, Wales is not a stranger to that. We have a, a patron saint of Wales, Saint David, which I had never heard of before we moved here. Um, and, and a patron saint is is simply uh, looked at as a as a heavenly uh, advocate or a heavenly uh, protector over a a nation or over a region. And so Saint David is looked at, at as as that this sort of heavenly. Uh, advocate, one that we could go to that would look after the well-being of those in in Wales, and uh, and I, I have to tell you that while that is the the belief of many, it's not the biblical meaning of the word saint. 
I cannot pray to St. David and hope that he would hear me and answer my prayers. The meaning of the word saint is actually given to us here in 1 Corinthians. The whole definition and the benefits that come from being a saint. And what's remarkable about this is that the he says this of the Corinthian church, which was a mess. I mean, almost everything they were doing needed correction. In fact, it wasn't just their, their conduct and their service, but it was even their, their motivation behind those uh, things were wrong. And it all stemmed from wrong doctrine. And so Paul sets out to, to correct all those things, and he begins here by calling them saints. Now, the word saint, I have it for you here, is hagias, and it means holy ones. Hagias. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, okay, that speaks of the church, that speaks of, of us. Uh, am, I a, am I a holy one? Well, according to the Bible, yes, you are. Uh, because what this speaks of is your position in Christ. I want to make sure you understand this, okay? This is super important. It speaks of your position in Christ. We have to remember that there's a very clear difference between your position in Christ and your practice. Um, meaning, positionally, God sees us as holy because we have the righteousness of his son. We have the righteousness of Christ, and so he sees us as holy. But in practice, well, we can all admit we don't always act holy, do we? I was uh, saved. I was baptized when I was very young. I was around 10 years old. And so then positionally, I was made, I was made holy by God. And, and therefore, he saw me as such. However, I did, not, I, I did not make my practice match my position until I was in my early 30s. It took me quite a while. And that's the Corinthian church. They had been made holy. They were, they were saints, but they had not yet made their lives match their position. So Paul begins here at the beginning to remind them of their uh, position. And then in verses 4 through 9, he's going to explain what that means, which we'll actually look at next uh, Sunday. But the thrust and the purpose of the entire letter is to get their practice to match their position to get them to live up to their calling, which of what I've titled the whole entire study of 1 Corinthians, to live up to their calling. So let's look back at verse 1. We're going to read just the three, first three verses this morning by uh, way of introduction. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sothenes our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So to begin with here, uh, we're just going to kind of break this into two sections. We'll look at Paul, we'll look at the church. So here we're going to take a look at, at Paul. And the letter starts out very simply, Paul. <laughs> All 13 of Paul's letters begin with this same word, Paul. You can really impress your friends now and say, I have learned the introduction to all 13 of Paul's letters. <clears throat> Hopefully you got that. 
But um, Paul, that's how he begins all his letters. And, and that's one of the reasons why I don't think he wrote the book of Hebrews. That's one of the you know mysterious author books. We don't know if it was Paul or somebody else. It's just because he didn't put his name at the beginning, like he does with all 13 of his other letters. But I also, I like the Greek practice here of placing the name of the author at the beginning um, of the letter. Because I think our modern, cha- our modern uh, practice should, should change a bit, right? You got to read through the whole letter to find out who... Who, who it's from. But here, in the Greek practice, it was to put the name at the very beginning. So right off the bat, you knew who, who was speaking to you. And he always gave his name at the beginning. And frequently, he named other church leaders who, who had joined him in writing. And, and, and this letter is no exception. As you'll see in a moment, he, he mentions a brother called Sosthenes. And we'll talk about him in a bit. But first, let's talk about Paul. Paul begins by drawing attention to his calling. And his calling is as an apostle. Now, why is this important? Well, as I said, this, this letter is, is corrective in nature, and Paul is going to be giving instruction on the proper uh, function and motivation for the church, which is rooted in doctrine. You have to understand doctrine to understand that. And he is going to challenge them in just about every way and challenge them to live up to their calling as saints. He must establish that he has authority to teach them these things. Now, you have to remember this, that he is not one of the 12. He's not one of the 12 disciples. Um, if you remember, and we kind of looked at this back in Acts chapter uh, 1 last uh, week, in chapter 1, verses uh, 21 to 22, the disciples were gathered together in Jerusalem. It tells us that there were 120 or so uh, brethren gathered together, and among those were the 11. Now, I say 11 because Judas at that point had already gone and hung himself. And the purpose of their meeting was to select a replacement for Judas. And if you remember in verses 21 to 22, um, the, the qualifications for being chosen were listed. It says, Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Um, and so... It had to be someone that that walked with Jesus, that knew Jesus, that saw Jesus, that saw him uh, rise again. And so they chose uh, Matthias, but but not Paul. Paul Paul wasn't there. Paul's not in the room. But Paul often mentioned um, himself as an apostle. And he mentions in this letter his manner um, of the manner of his calling. He, he, He received his calling by God. It says, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. And Paul made sure he did that in other letters as well. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Notice Paul elaborates there. It's not from men. It's not through man, but who? Through Jesus Christ, right? And God the Father. That's that's how he was appointed as an apostle. Paul's authority is divine. That's what he's trying to get across here because God called him to be an apostle. Uh, and, and listen, all gifts, uh, all local assignments that you have in your church, um, all of those things are God's will. They're, they're not man's. God appoints, appoints those, those things. And in 1 Corinthians, we'll talk about that later in chapter 12, but I'll give you a preview in chapter 12, verse 28. It says, and God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, gifts, healings, 
helps administration. You have a whole list of things coming. But notice he said, God has appointed in the church. It's God who has done that. And uh, apostles are right there at the beginning. So Paul is saying it's not, it's not something that he sought out. It did not come to him through, through birth or his family line in some way. It did not come through the normal process of education, uh, nor by the election of men. It came by uh, the will of God. So he's called by God. Now, I should also note that there is, there's not meant to be a, any kind of smack of arrogance in this as you read this, as many people like to flaunt their titles. I'm doctor this, and I have a PhD in this, or right, it's, it's uh, I'm an apostle. Um, if you read Paul's letters, he is anything but arrogant. He looked at himself as the least of the apostles uh, because he persecuted the church. Right? He thought he was the worst of them all because uh, he did that. In fact, he called himself the chief of sinners. Uh, and when he adds himself among the witnesses at the, the resurrection in chapter 15, we read it last uh, week, he says, Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. So, so Jesus appeared to me, but it was as though um, I, I was prematurely born. Right? He appeared to all these other people, but, but I, I, was, I was the last one as one born out of due time. He's saying of the apostles, he's the runt of the litter, <laughs> is what he's talking about here. And yes, he met Jesus face to face on that road to Damascus. You can read about his conversion. He relays it several times in the book of, of Acts. But Jesus did also appear to others. He appeared to James, his, his half-brother. Um, and James did become a, a, a follower. In fact, he became a leader of the church in Jerusalem. But let, let me tell you this, James didn't become an apostle. He doesn't call himself an apostle, but Paul was. He's not one of the original 12, though. And so Paul isn't trying to gain honor here. He's trying to establish his right to speak authoritatively uh, on on all the subjects that he's going to cover. Uh, One of the reasons for this is that some in the church were questioning his um, apostleship which he will address further in chapter 9. But just to give you a glimpse, I'll give you the first two verses of chapter 9. He says this, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ, our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I'm not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. One of the reasons Paul could could emphasize his apostleship, uh, particularly to this church, that the church in Corinth, was because of their existence as a church. He says, you're the, you're the seal of my apostleship. He was the instrument God used to bring salvation in the first place. If anything proves my apostleship, he says, it, it should be you. Now, before you get further, I, just, I want to establish something here. There are many people who will take the same kind of view as some of the Corinthians did here and question Paul's apostleship in this way. In that they like to go into, and this book above all others in, in this letter, like to go into 1 Corinthians. And they like to pull things out and mess around with them. And say, well, this thing is authority, authoritative, but this one isn't. Uh, Paul is speaking just on his opinion here, but it doesn't have any bearing here. He says, I say this, not the Lord. And listen, by the way, when we get to those passages, I will make clear what he's saying. He's saying, Jesus never made a clear declaration on this, but I'm going to. And you need to take it as authority. And what I'm trying to establish here and now, as he establishes his authority with the Corinthians and why he can go and teach them what he's going to teach them and and call for them to change, is that we must take the same approach today. 
The, the messed up church we see here is just, the churches today are just as messed up. And we have to understand that Paul nowhere in this letter speaks an opinion. He's nowhere just sharing his, his fancy or a thought. Listen, you take that approach with Moses, right? Take that there. Oh, Moses was just sharing his opinion about how the world was created. What kind of trouble will you work into there, right? Abraham was just sort of sharing his opinion about his perspective of these things that God was doing with the covenant. I mean, you just get into a whole mess of things. Paul nowhere is sharing his opinion. He is teaching authoritatively. All scripture is God-breathed, and we must look at it as such. And we will, I will remind people of that as we go forward. And that's why he is setting this in stone to begin with. He is emphasizing his apostleship, which is by the will of God. But then notice he mentions another name. He mentions this guy, Sosthenes. Um, who, who is this? Why does, Paul, why does Paul mention him? Well, first of all, Paul often used uh, an amanuensis. It's a, it's a name for a secretary or a, or a penman. And Paul would, would dictate the words that he wanted written, but someone else, the amanuensis, would, would pen it, would write it down, and then Paul would just sign his name at the, at the end. Um, and sometimes he did write his own letters, but more often than not, he used a penman. And, and they were usually mentioned at the end of the letter. In fact, in my Bible, the end of Romans is on the same page as 1 Corinthians. So if you want to look at the end of Romans, chapter 16, verse 22, there's a great example. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. You see it there. So there, the Romans, we know is, it's by Paul, but he used an amanuensis. He used Tertius to write it down for him as Paul dictated it to him. Here in this letter to the Corinthians, he mentions Sosthenes, but he does it at the front. He doesn't do it at the end. Now, why is this important? Well, here's why it's important. Please listen to this. It's important because of who Sosthenes is. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. We're going to go there a couple of times today, so just uh, maybe mark that and be prepared to go back to it. In Acts chapter 18, this is, the, this is the start of the Corinthian church. This is when Paul comes there. I'll cover the background of that in just a moment. Right now, we just want to investigate into this uh, Sosthenes character. Uh, but in verses, well, let's read the beginning here, verse 1 of chapter 18. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for by occupation. They were tent makers. So he goes in here and he meets with them. He kind of makes an establishment with this group, these two people. And they're kind of the start of the, uh, the, the church, church here. And by the way, tent makers, is, it's really more like um, leather, leather making. Leather, they worked, worked with leather uh, materials. Verse 4, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed him, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. So, so Paul goes and teaches in the synagogue 
and they're not agreeing with him. And so he shakes off the dust. He's like, that's it. I have nothing more to do with you. And he stomps out the door and he goes next door. <laughs> he goes right next door to this guy who lives in the synagogue right there. Um, and in, in, verse, uh, in verse 8, we learn something about this ruler of the synagogue. His name is Crispus. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. So whatever difficulties he had with Crispus, um, because he just went next door, he didn't really go, that's it, I'm done with you, I'm going to the Gentiles. He just went next door. And he still had influence in Crispus's life, and Crispus became a believer. Now, it says in verse 9, the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So there's the start of the church, and we'll, we'll go back through that in a moment. But, but, but I'm trying to get to this point here. Paul has had uh, influence already on Crispus in the synagogue. And it looks like some time has passed. He stays, stays around because of God's encouragement to him through that vision. He stays a year and six months. So, so some time has passed when we get to verse 12. That's important. Because it says in verse 12, When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. So it's been some time that's passed. Remember, Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue. So obviously he's no longer the ruler of synagogue. He's, he's, he's joined Paul's group. So who is he replaced by? Sosthenes. Sosthenes becomes the new uh, ruler of the, the, the synagogue. And it's very, very likely that this is, in fact, the same uh, person. Paul refers to him as the, the, our, our brother. And this former enemy of Paul apparently became converted, perhaps even as a result, partly, to what took place uh, there because they, they beat him. And, and some of your translations say the Greeks beat him and some say the Jews uh, beat him. And, and hey, you know, if the Jews beat Sothenes up, that was because he, he did a poor job of his case against Paul. And if it was the Greeks, they were just mad that they wasted the proconsul's time, right? But the point is, Sosthenes got beat up. And I imagine that woke him up a bit, and maybe he had an opportunity, and Paul had an opportunity, to kind of meet together over that year and a half. Because Sosthenes became a believer. And here's why this is significant, that Paul includes his name at the beginning. Because Sosthenes knew the Corinthian situation. He is one of them. He's their people. He has come from the city. And what Paul is about to write is not only penned by one of their own, but he agrees with it. it, it by Sosthenes adding his name there, he's saying, I'm, I'm in agreement with Paul. So this is very, very important. I think also it demonstrates the power uh, of conversion and the drastic impact the gospel should have upon someone's life. I mean, he, he, he changed completely. So that's that's verse 1. We have Paul. He's called to be an apostle. It's all by the will of God. And Sosthenes, his brother, is penning the letter for him. Now we look at the church. Point 2 is the church of God, and we're called to be saints. Verse 2. 
to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Well, let's begin here with the church of God. That's first and foremost to note that the church belongs to God. It does not belong to man. Now, this church, Calvary Chapel Cardiff, is not uh, Cardiff's church. It's not Calvary Chapel, the organization. It's not Calvary Chapel's church. It's not my church. It's God's church. It's the church of God. And we are a body of people, and we do not belong to any leader, any group, denomination, or country. We all belong to God. When Paul exhorted, you might remember, the Ephesian elders um, regarding their churches back in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, this is what he said to them. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. There is only one who has purchased the church and we belong to him. We're simply called to be good stewards of what belongs to God. So the letter is to uh, the church, which belongs to God, but the church of God is in Corinth. Now, we didn't explain kind of what we're looking at here in, in, in Corinth. Um, we're talking about the region of, of Greece, and it's divided into two provinces. And I have a map for you we're going to throw up real quick. And if you look in the uh, uh, top, you've got um, Macedonia in the north and Achaia in the in the south. And it's two big chunks of land that are connected by a very small little piece of land in the middle. It's a four mile wide little piece called an isthmus. And on the west side, uh, where you kind of see that gulf coming, uh, deeply cutting into the land there, that is the Gulf of Corinth. And then on the east side, you have a little gulf there, and that's the Saronic Gulf. And so you have these two ports, right? Gulfs on each side and two big land masses, but they're connected by, barely connected at all by a four mile wide piece of, of land here. And uh, it had been split up. These, these regions have been split up into these provinces. Macedonia is in the north and Achaia is in the south. And you can see Corinth um, is located in Achaia. And that bottom piece of land is called the uh, Peloponnese. And if you were to sort of travel around the globe and transport, uh, you know, goods from one side of, uh, of uh, that sea to the other, so from like the Aegean Sea, you wanted to go to the other side, you'd have to sail all the way around. You can't see the whole part there in the map there, down around the southern part of that Peloponnese, around the Malaya. Uh, and and sail sailors used to say no sailor would, would sail around Malaya unless he had first uh, written out his will because it was so dangerous. It was a dangerous trek, and it was another 250 miles to go all the way around to get to the other side. So what they used to do is they used to go right into that gulf, the Gulf of Corinth, all the way deep into the land there. And when they got to the land, they would drag their ships up onto land, and they would transport their ships on rollers or skids for those four miles, and then drop it back into the ocean on the other side in the Saronic Gulf and sail off into the Aegean Sea. And from there, you can go to Ephesus and Troas and all those different areas there. And so because they did that, that area became, or that isthmus became known as Dialcos, um, and that is the place of dragging across because they always dragged these ships across. And it was way more economical um, than going all the way around, way less dangerous, and so that's what they used to do. Now, the Roman emperor uh, Nero in the first century began a canal there, 
and but it just took so long to complete. It wasn't completed until the 19th century, but today, I've got an aerial photo for you. You can see that there has been a canal that has been dug, and it is a straight line, straight through. So today, <laughs> praise the Lord, you don't have to drag your ship across land. Uh, you just sail right through the canal that has been made by uh, man, and you can get goods from one side to uh, the other. Now, let's talk about Corinth. It was a city first held by the Macedonians way back when, 196 uh, BC, but it was just destroyed in one. 46 BC. And then a hundred years later, it was rebuilt by Julius Caesar and he established it as a Roman colony. And then Augustus Caesar made Corinth the capital of that whole province of Achaia. Um, And it became a great, just prosperous commercial uh, center for Greece. It had a huge population of 400,000 people. And so Corinth Corinth was thriving. It was was prosperous. and, And much of that reason was due to its strategic location. I have one more map for you, and that's just to show you exactly where Corinth is on that isthmus. Okay, so you can see the isthmus of Corinth, that little piece of land. On the uh, one side, you have a port called Lycaeum. On the other side, Sincrea. But right smack dab in the middle is Corinth. And you can see it's right in between where those ships would have been dragged across. It's perfectly located on the road up to Athens as well. And so it just made it a prime location to get all the travelers from all the world uh, coming through. Now, while the city was a thriving metropolis, noted for its wealth and luxury, uh, it was also noted for something else, noted for its gross immorality, um, uh, and not even to, even to a pagan world. Uh, so much so that there is a Greek word that was um, co- coined called uh, Corinthian estais, and it meant to become like a Corinthian, to become like one, which came to represent really uh, gross immorality, drunken debauchery. You just become like a, 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 a Corinthian. And it was a, Corinth was a great place of moral depravity. It had an Acropolis, which is just a Greek word for a high place. And it's a 2,000 foot high mound of, of granite. And they built the Acro Corinth up there, which is just a you know, fortress where you could kind of get all the people uh, in a time of attack and to defend yourself on top of the mountain. But they built something else up there. They built a temple and they built the temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And the temple was renowned for housing a thousand temple prostitutes who would go down into the city at night and ply their trade. So this was a, a, um, a, a part of their religious practice. So this was uh, a very morally depraved uh, city, an evil city. In fact, Paul describes the unrighteousness of the city in, in chapter 6, in verse 9. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. So he's telling them, you, you know, you, you, you've got to be righteous. You can't be unrighteous because they won't inherit the kingdom of God. And he lists the unrighteous acts. that Neither fornicators, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul says at the end of that section, and such were some of you. They had come out of that pagan lifestyle. Now, when did that all start? Well, it started when uh, Paul made his journey there. You might remember Paul made three missionary journeys. He established Corinth on his uh, second missionary journey. Uh, just briefly, on his first missionary journey, he starts in, uh, in Antioch of Syria, 
and he sails across to Cyprus and then directly up from there goes up to the regions of Pamphylia and Phrygia and Galatia. And all through those little towns there, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and that's where he begins and he kind of goes backtracks. So in his second missionary journey, and he does that with Barnabas, in his second missionary journey, he does this one with Silas, and he decides to go right back through those churches, but this time on land. So he just goes up through Syria, and he goes right back in backwards order through those churches to strengthen them. And you might remember this. He wants to continue going west. He wants to go into Asia, uh, where Ephesus would be, where, um, where the seven churches that are listed in the book of Revelation, uh, Laodicea and Thyatira and Pergamum, those are all there. They're not there at the time, but Paul wants to go there, uh, but he's, he's per, per, not permitted by the Holy Spirit. We don't know how, in what way, but he's just not permitted to go there. So instead, he receives a vision of a Macedonian man, right, uh, to come to Macedonia. And so he sails across to Macedonia instead, and where does he wind up? He winds up in, in Philippi. So the second missionary journey, you could sort of highlight it, it starts in Acts chapter 16 and goes to 18.22, but in in Acts chapter 16, uh, he, uh, after backtracking through those places, when he comes to Macedonia, you might remember the first place he goes to um, in, in, in Philippi is he goes to, on, on the Sabbath, he goes down to the river and he meets a woman who sells purple, right? It's Lydia. And she believes. She becomes saved and her whole household. And then they meet a slave girl, right, who is demon-possessed. And she makes her masters a lot of money through her divination and stuff. Well, they cast out the, holy, the spirit from her, the evil spirit. And that ruins the business for these guys. And so they drag uh, Paul and, and Silas into uh, the magistrates and they're beaten with rods and they're jailed, right? What happens in the jail? A localized uh, earthquake takes place and all the doors open, but, but they don't escape. They just stay there. And the Philippian jailer is about to kill himself because he thinks they've all gone. And um, he comes in finds them singing, and, and his whole household believes. So, so he's called by the Lord to go to Philippi, and right away he starts a church with a lady who sells purple, a slave girl, and a jailer. Pretty, a pretty amazing nucleus of a church, isn't it? But in Philippi, things still get tough. You still have the guys in the synagogue that don't like him, and he ends up having to leave, and he goes down to Thessalonica, just kind of going right down that way. He starts a church there, but they chase him out of there. Then he goes down and finds those wonderful brethren down in Berea who search the scriptures, right, diligently. And he's chased out of there. And then he ends up going down to Athens, where he goes to the Oropagus and, and preaches about this unknown God that they had displayed there. Um, and then eventually, right after that, he, he ends up in Corinth. And chapter 18 is where you pick that, uh, pick that up. And we, we read some of that. And right at the beginning uh, there, um, he meets this uh, Aquila and Priscilla. And he takes them under his wing. They're kind of the beginning of the church there in, in Corinth. And we're told... As we read already, he was there for a year and a half. After the year and a half, he decides to um, he decides to leave and he decides to go back to um, uh, to Ephesus. And if you look down in chapter eighteen, if you're if you're in Acts with me, it says this um, in nineteen. I'm sorry, verse nineteen. And he came to Ephesus and, and left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus, and basically he went home. So he had taken Aquila and Priscilla with him, but he let, leaves them there in Ephesus, and he sails home. So verse 22 ends his missionary journey, his second missionary journey. Verse 23 begins his third missionary journey. There's no gap there. You can mark it right now. Because you look at verse 23, after he had spent some time there in Antioch, where he ended up, he departed and went 
over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order. So he goes right back through all those uh, towns that he had gone through before, strengthening those uh, churches. But while he's doing that, we have a nice little interlude. We're introduced to somebody else. His name is Apollos. Look at verse 24. Now, a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. He spoke of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting to the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And then in verse 1 of chapter 19, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. Now here's why I show you this, is that we are introduced to the second pastor of the church of Corinth. Apollos comes into Ephesus when Paul has left. Um, he's a godly man, but he's just off on some doctrinally, doctrinal things, and Aquila and Priscilla privately instruct him. And then he gets a call to go over to Achaia, and it tells us there that it's actually Corinth that he goes to. So he's the second pastor of uh, the, the church there. And Paul is um, um, in communication. And what happens here is that while Paul is in Ephesus, word reaches Paul that there are some issues in the church. So sometime along the way, Paul wrote a, a, a first letter to the church in Corinth. But we don't have that letter. It's called the lost letter. In fact, we have one Corinthians, and we all assume that's the first letter. But he actually wrote a letter prior to this. We call it the lost letter because we don't have a record of it. Now, you might be thinking, okay, if we don't have a record of the letter and it's lost, how do we know there was a letter? That's a good question. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I want to show you, go to verses 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. This is just setting everything up about Corinth and what Paul is trying to deal with here. Verse 9, it says, I wrote to you in my epistle. Do you see that? I wrote, past tense. I, I wrote to you in my other letter, not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of the world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. So what Paul is writing there, he's writing to clarify what he meant in his first letter. He says you shouldn't you know, be with sexually immoral people. And they just thought he was talking about people in the world. So they just stopped, you know, uh, meeting with unbelievers at all. But then, then that kind of stuff was happening in the church. And he says, oh, you're not getting the picture. I meant in the church. You shouldn't associate with people doing that in the church. And this highlights the problem that Corinth was having, doesn't it? The church could not disconnect from the world. They could not de-Corinthianize themselves, right? That's the problem. And so he's trying to get them to purify the church, to not associate with those in the church who just refuse to to, to continue or to, to leave their debauched lifestyle. Um, so more reports start coming uh, in. In fact, look back at verse 1 of chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you 
and such sexual morality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. He's saying, I'm getting a report that there's, there's sexual sin, flagrant sin, that wouldn't even be um, appropriate to a pagan world. It's happening in the church. I've got reports. It's reported uh, to me there. If you go back to um, chapter 4, verse uh, 17 there, For this reason I've sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. He's so concerned that he sends Timothy uh, there to go investigate what's going on. But the reports continue to come in. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 11, right at the beginning, it says this, chapter 1, verse 11, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. So right at the beginning, and he, you know, he kind of rats them out. It's Chloe's household ha, who, who told me about you. They're, they're having fighting among the brethren. So they've got fighting and they've got reports of the sexual sin there. Um, in, in chapter 7, verse, verse 1, um, they wrote him. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for man to not to touch a, a woman. And the whole section there is about uh, marriage and sex and those kinds of things. And so he's trying to clear things up about that. So all these things have gotten him so uh, upset and curious. He, he sends Timothy. Now, there might even have been a brief visit by Paul somewhere in here because it, he alludes to that in, in his second letter. But after writing a letter, receiving a letter, various reports coming in about what's going on, dispatching Timothy uh, there, Paul finally sits down and he writes this letter, one Corinthians. And this happens somewhere around AD 54 to 56. So I'm writing probably 55, right there in the middle. And in this letter, he is, he is attempting to set them straight morally and doctrinally. In fact, look what he says in verse uh, 2 uh, again. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Now here we have another word that we need to look at. It's sanctified. It's hagiazo. And that word is consecrated or set apart or purified. Consecrated, set apart, purified, hagiazo. Now listen, I need to make sure you understand <clears throat> that this word must be distinguished from the idea of uh, spiritual growth. I think we always use it in that sense of sanctification. It's the process of our spiritual growth. We're growing more and more uh, Christ-like. But that's not what Paul means here. When he says you are sanctified, he's speaking about a past act of God. You are sanctified. Because what's the root word here? Well, we looked at it earlier. It's hagias. It's holy ones. It's saint. It's the word we already looked at. Sanctified implies their standing before God and saints is the name given to those who possess that standing. Does that make sense? So your standing is <coughs> sanctified. And then because you are sanctified, you can be called a saint. You've been set apart. You've been made holy. You've been purified. Does that make sense? And, and this sanctified name or position, I'm sorry, called to be saints, is not just given to those in Corinth. This is not something unique. That's happened to, only to them. In fact, he says, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. This links together all believers everywhere. This shows that this epistle 
is, is meant to be relevant to us today. It's to all who have called on the name of Jesus Christ. We're all sanctified. We're all called to be saints. We're positionally sanctified. Therefore, we are saints. Now, let me ask you, can we sanctify ourselves? Can we make ourselves holy? Hopefully, everyone's shaking their head no. We cannot, right? We're made holy. We are sanctified by another. And the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 2, verse 11. I have the verse for you. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So who's he who sanctifies? That's Jesus. Who are those who are being sanctified? That's us. We're all one, and so Jesus is not ashamed to say we're brothers. We're, we're brethren. That's Hebrews 2.11. But then in chapter 10, Hebrews 10.14, it says this. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Jesus' offering, which is what? His death, right? His death made possible that, uh, made it possible we could be cleansed, that we could be sanctified, that we could be holy. In fact, perfected forever. That's the idea there. And so you, um, as um, a saint, you are, you are saved. You're perfected forever. Not only are all saints saved, but all the saved are saints, right? You can say it both ways. And Paul's point is, is this. Why are you acting unholy? That's really the, the whole thing. You are this. Why are you acting like this? So he's going to address this throughout the letter. That becomes the theme, live up to your calling. And knowing that Paul was linked to them and to us uh, in this way, it should increase our our sense of responsibility as well to live up to that calling as saints. It's, it's a letter to this church here, to any church today, that we're called to live that way. And Paul concludes with a wonderful greeting in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is a typical apostolic greeting. Uh, Paul first used it in Romans uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 7. He says, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Very similar, isn't it? He says, you're called to be saints, and so grace and peace to you. And grace and peace is significant because grace is the Greek greeting and peace is the Jewish one, right? I mean, he uses the Greek word for it, irene here, but uh, the Jewish word is shalom, but it's grace and peace the two greetings here. And while it is a traditional greeting, I think Paul uses it to, to point to the, the divine source of, of those things. In fact, when you look at uh, peace in Romans 5.1, it says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You could say peace is a benefit of being a saint. Um, it comes to those who have been according to this verse, justified. So what's that mean? What's the difference between justified and sanctified? Well, justified is the act of God declaring you not guilty. In fact, not only not guilty, but, but innocent, innocent of wrongdoing. And, um, and therefore, because of that, you have peace with God. He's got no more gripe with you because you're, you're innocent of, of, of any evil. That's justification. That's justified. Sanctified declares us holy. So 
we're, we're, we're not only uh, innocent of wrongdoing, but we're made perfect, right? As the writer of Hebrews said, perfected for forever. We're made holy. So we can have peace with God because we've been justified and we can live for God because we've been sanctified. Practically uh, speaking about peace, we can experience that, that here and now because of the peace that we have with God, we can experience the peace of God. <clears throat> in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That peace of God really only comes to, <clears throat> to believers because it's that kind of soul um, soul peace that we get. We have peace with the creator of the universe. In his eyes, we have no wrongdoing. We're, we're saints. And so this greeting, when you look at grace and peace to you, is really a greeting that's only appropriate for believer to believer. Grace and peace, right? You have experienced the grace of God, right? It's by God's grace we have been saved. And and before, you know, as, as we look at the end here, before Paul continues this, he's going to continue the letter here and speak more fully about the benefits of, um, of, of what we enjoy as a result of being saints. So will talk about that in verses 4 to 9, and we'll look more at that next week. But here today, just by way of uh, conclusion, Paul has come to a church that is really messed up. Uh, doing a lot of things wrong. Uh, and if you were to walk into that church and see all these things going on, you might just go, well, I don't think these people are saved, right? What's going on? What Paul is doing is he's saying, no, you are saints. You're sanctified and you're called to be saints. That's why you're here. I, I came to you um, and, and God brought me to you. And I, I witnessed all those things. But now, but now, that's where you are positionally. Let's get your practice to match that position. This is going to take instruction. This is going to take correction. This is why we delve into God's word ourselves. We must always be looking at ourselves to see, do, do, does this match up? When we're called in scripture to examine ourselves, we're not called to see how much do we know, right? We have an idea of exam. I, 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 a teacher does an examination for the kids. Why are they doing that? They want to see how much they know, Right? That's not the intent here. When we examine ourselves, it's not to see how much knowledge we have. It's to see what are we really made of, right? Does this ship really float? This is the idea. And that's what he's trying to do here. Let's take an in-depth examination at this church. Let's see if it matches up to where you are positionally because this is how God sees you. And let's see if we can't get your practice to match your position. So I hope that this study will be encouraging to you and it will be um, purifying to all of us, purifying the church, but ultimately glorifying to God because the church is his, we're his people, and we want to live for him. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for the opportunity we have to begin a new study into this letter to the Corinthians. And uh, God, we just pray that this would be a profitable study, that you would really go before us and you'd bless our time in your word, Lord. And we do want to be a church that looks uh, like how you see us, Lord. You, you see us as holy. You call us saints, which is a remarkable thing. In fact, I'm just thinking of the saints that are watching this right now. I know there's a Saint uh, Michelle and a Saint Haley and a Saint Ben and a Saint 
a Kofi and a Saint Nubia and a Saint Shelby and a Saint Rachel. And there's, they're all saints. And you see us as such. But Lord, I know we don't often see ourselves that way because our practice so often doesn't match up with our position. But Lord, it's clear by this letter that you want it to that you want it to. You want to see us living up to that calling. So help us to do that by your spirit. Open up our hearts and minds for what you want to teach us through this study, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.